Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hmm. Sip of tea, one, two, one, two, definitely recording. Yes. Okay, let's go. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that puts the crunchy chestnut stuffing of psychology into the oversized turkey of politics. I'm Raphael Baer, uh, and in this episode, I get to talk about one of my favourite concepts in psychology. I have a feeling it's something I've referred to a bunch of times on this podcast before, probably without giving it a decent definition, and I'm sorry about that, uh, but worse still, probably without necessarily understanding it as well as I should have done, so I'm even more sorry about that. I'm talking about cognitive dissonance. Now, this is a phenomenon that is closely connected to the reasons for starting this podcast in the first place. I think I said this in one of the early episodes, but I'd noticed when writing about politics that a lot of the problems in democracy, a lot of the problems that I'd seen in Westminster and was sort of observing elsewhere seemed connected to the difficulty people had changing each other's minds. You know, the, the principle, the, the theory of having elections is that you have swing voters. There's a movement uh, between camps of different opinion. and One side has to convince at least some people in a rival group to cross over to their side. And when I looked at Brexit divisions or polarisation in the US between Trump supporters and anti-Trump forces, it just got really hard to see how that kind of exchange was possible. And we can even see it now in the different tribes that have sprung up around COVID regulations and what is right and wrong and how people should behave in this situation. Democracy politics needs people to admit sometimes that they were wrong about something. Um, and that's hard because often it involves rejecting something that has become fundamental to their identity. You know, they don't have to necessarily admit it in public, you know, hooray for the secret ballot, but they do have to admit it to themselves. And it turns out that human beings are really, really bad at that. They're not just reluctant to change their minds. They, we find it mentally challenging. And cognitive dissonance theory explains why, or it's part of the explanation why. And to understand this force, I was lucky to consult Dr. Carol Tavris, now retired, but formerly of the University of California in Los Angeles, from where she spoke to me. And I can confirm that the weather in LA looked appallingly sunny and delightful compared to what's going on outside my window right now. You might even be able to hear the rain lashing against uh, the glass. Carol Tavris brings decades of distinguished writing and research to this conversation. She has earned a string of honours and awards. She's published a number of important works, but the book you'll hear mentioned a few times here, the one that was instrumental in bringing dissonance theory to a wider audience, is called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And the subtitle is Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions and Hurtful Acts. Now, this really important book was published in 2007, but an updated edition was released earlier this year 
with a chapter dedicated to the whole Trump phenomenon. The book was co-written with Elliot Aronson, another supremely distinguished social psychologist. You'll hear his name mentioned a few times. Carol's rightly very keen that we credit him properly for his contribution. So we're doing exactly that now. The other name you'll hear, a person worth knowing about in this context, is Leon Festinger. He was the first pioneer of dissonance theory. Now, in the early 1950s, Festinger and some colleagues infiltrated a doomsday cult. Uh, There was a group that had attached itself to a charismatic preacher called Marion Keach. Now, she had predicted that the world would end on the 20th of December 1954 and that her followers and only her followers would be saved at midnight by a flying saucer probably won't surprise you to learn that the world survived, continued to exist after the 20th of December 1954. There was no flying saucer. But Keech's most zealous supporters weren't put off by the failure of her prediction. In fact, they doubled down because Keech had an emergency vision that the world had in fact been spared because of the group's faith. So they hadn't been wrong exactly. In fact, they had been even more right than they had realised. And the supporters, or at least the keenest among them, bought this idea. So Festinger's observations were absolutely critical to understanding why people don't change their minds. And he gets a name check right at the top of the conversation here, where I've just asked Carol Tavris to explain what exactly we mean by cognitive dissonance. The original theory developed by Leon Festinger so many decades ago was quite simple. It's the feeling of discomfort, mental discomfort we have when two ideas or a belief and our behavior contradict each other, clash with each other. So the classic example from Festinger was the smoker who knows that smoking is foolish and stupid and harmful, but really likes smoking. That creates dissonance between what I'm doing and what I know is wrong about what I'm doing. And for Festinger, that feeling of dissonance, that discomfort is as uncomfortable and as motivating as being hungry or thirsty. And we are deeply motivated to reduce it. So the smoker has to quit smoking or justify smoking. Okay, I know it's not good for me, but it keeps me thin. And after all, being fat is bad for your health too. And it's a stress reducer and blah, blah. What my wonderful colleague, the great social psychologist, Elliot Aronson, did as a student of Festinger's was to advance cognitive dissonance theory into making it a theory of self-justification. Namely, lots of things are dissonance, create dissonance. You and your best friend disagree about Woody Allen or about movies or about something, and it's a momentary dissonance, but it's not a make or break issue for you. But what Elliot showed is When the contradictory ideas question something central to our self-concept, then we are especially motivated to reduce the dissonance. I think of myself as smart, competent, good, and kind, and now you're telling me I just did something stupid, foolish, unkind, hurtful, and wrong? How am I going to reduce that dissonance? Immediately, I, I, I can see now how this becomes very quickly relevant to, to any kind of political conversation, because both in the UK and the US, we have this situation where people who self-identify as conservatives, and if you think about a cons- conservative self-concept being about adhering to traditions, uh, wanting to preserve institutional continuity, and then you have either a candidate like Donald Trump or a prospect like Brexit, which is ultimately very revolutionary and about smashing things up. And there is a dissonance there, is there not, between thinking, I'm a conservative, I believe in traditional values, and there is this, I voted for this monster who wants to basically smash everything up. Am I right in thinking that you will then find the justifications that will try and resolve that? Yes. What happens when we are first confronted with dissonance? I believe in this idea, so I voted for it. Now, What happens is the confirmation bias, which is universal, is what sees to it that we only notice and remember information that confirms our beliefs and how right and smart we are. And we will ignore and forget and overlook any information that is dissonant, that disconfirms our belief. So the crucial thing here is how important that belief is to us to begin with. You know, if You give me evidence that I did not make the best beef wellington in the world. That's not exactly dissonant for me. I mean, I don't see myself as the greatest beef wellington chef in the world. But if you question my skepticism, 
You know, if I find that I have accepted some uh, internet idea without examining it and, and validating it, then I will feel embarrassed. I will feel dissonance between my view of myself and what I have just learned that I've done or believed. What's happened in a way around the world, certainly in the UK and the United States, is that political identities have become more central to people than they ever were over the last 10 or 20 years. Used to be, I don't know, your neighbor was a Republican or a Democrat and you were the other thing. And so what? You know, now, you know, it's it's really a central defining concept for so many people. And presumably, sorry to interrupt, that means that the the way in which we have that conversation. So I say, well, uh, hang on, you, you, th- th- there is this contradiction here. I thought you were this kind of person. I thought, you know, it's not the Beef Wellington issue. I, I, I thought you cared about children, but you're you're against gun control, but guns kill children. So that this is a crazy thing for you to be. Uh, when I confront you with that, I'm not suggesting for a moment those are your positions, but um, <laughs> just <laughs> hypothetically speaking, when I confront you with that, presumably that aggravates you more and therefore the discomfort you feel will make you less responsive to an argument I'm presenting you with. Absolutely. That's the heart and soul of it. Dissonance is an unconscious mechanism that allows us to keep our beliefs in place without having to do all the mental work of changing them. That's the key thing about it. It's not about lying to other people to get off the hook because we know we have done something wrong or bad or stupid or foolish and we don't want to get lose our jobs or get a divorce. Dissonance works, reduction of dissonance works in a way to preserve our beliefs that we are right in what we think. And so it's about lying to ourselves in order to eliminate any dissonant information that might make us change our minds. That's how powerful it is. Is that about relieving a, a sort of a almost a physiological tension we have in the moment so as you say a sort of hunger thirst thing there's a sort of a palpitation that we want to quiet or is it about wanting continuity with the person we thought we were in the past so we're trying to iron out a nice smooth glide path from the person I always thought I was to I look in the mirror and I'm still that person. Yes. Well, both of those things are true. We, of course, change our minds over our lifetimes, but we do it so gradually and so subtly that we are allowed to maintain our belief and our consistency. It's easier to describe how powerful dissonance feels to people, the motivation to reduce it. When we see in the news someone like Sarah Silverman agonizing over her beloved friend, Louis C.K., and the evidence of his masturbating in front of these women and being so offensive to them. Right. So just for context, this was in the, the round when the Me Too movement was really building up and he was a comedian and he was found to have done the act that you described and his good friend, Sarah Silverman, another comedian, was caught in this dilemma. Well, as we all are, people can recognize when they have felt dissonance. When you hear in the news some sensational story, there's a great leap to take sides, to choose. This person's innocent. I, you know, of course they're innocent. I'm going to ignore any evidence that they were guilty. No, no, this person is completely guilty. So what happens is people make a spontaneous judgment to reduce the dissonance between I admire and love this person and look at what they did. That's very hard to hold in our heads at the same time. So the tendency is either to reduce the dissonance is to believe the evidence or throw out the evidence. And we do this ourselves all the time. Something we believe deeply the anti-vaccination movement in this country, which is completely crazy and began thanks to Andrew Wakefield, as we all know. But the more that people commit themselves to a belief, the harder it becomes for them to change their minds. Right. This is gets me to this, something I really want you to unpack for us, because in your, in your book, uh, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, um, which is a First of all, a brilliant title, but you, because <laughs> we've all done that. You said that in journalism, we talk about the, the passive tense is something you're never supposed to do in journalism. The past, the past self exonerative. Exactly. The past self exonerative. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and well, we were talking, I think, before we started recording about bad apologies where people say, I'm sorry that you were upset. Not, I'm sorry I upset you. I'm sorry that somehow this upsetness came from nowhere and landed on you. Um, but anyway, let's not get dis- distracted. Um, no, you use this image of the pyramid, uh, which I think is very important because I think before I'd read your book, in my head, I thought cognitive dissonance came about because you started somewhere very far removed from another position and therefore you felt the shock of that distance 
but actually with a pyramid what as i understand it and you can maybe unpack it for me actually it's because it can start at a very fine judgment this almost could go either way and but then once you've gone from 49 to 51 on on the dial somewhere on one side then this process begins to take you down the slope of the pyramid. Well, you've just described it perfectly. And it explains, by the way, why it is we can look at the behavior of other people that seems crazy to us, completely irrational and nuts. It's because we think we are looking at the beginning of the process when in fact we're looking at the end. So the metaphor of the pyramid is very simple. You have two people at the very top, at the pinnacle. They have the same general attitude toward cheating. They don't think it's a good thing, but they know it's not a great thing. You shouldn't cheat, blah, blah. Okay, now they're given an opportunity to cheat. Students taking an exam or people with their taxes, whatever the opportunity is. And spontaneously, one decides to cheat and the other decides not to cheat and maintain integrity. It's impulsive, it's almost random. But the cheater says, no, I I really need to cheat on this exam. I've really got to get a good grade. I've really got to pass or my life will be ruined. And the other is saying, you know what? No, cheating is not a victimless crime. It's, it's, it matters and I'm not going to do it. Now, the second they make that decision, they must put their belief about cheating in consonance with their behavior. They have to resolve the dissonance between what they think about cheating and what they've done. So if you've cheated, You will now think cheating is not such a bad thing to do. Oh, please, it's just this once. It's no big deal. Everybody cheats. And the one who resisted will say, it is a very big deal, and I feel better for not having cheated. Once that step off the pyramid is made, it sets each person on a path to the bottom with one justifying cheating and the other thinking more and more harshly about those who cheat. At the very bottom, They stand as far apart from one another on their views of cheating as they could be. And moreover, think that they always felt that way. That's very important, isn't it? That's That's very very important. important. Well, and the other thing that's really crucial is that if you see it that way, you understand how much mental effort has gone into justifying the slide down the pyramid in either direction and why it's so hard to go back up. The person, oh, I'm only cheating just this once, will know. You've now done all the mental work of justifying cheating, which will make your next act of cheating more likely and more justifiable. And as I understand it, it then becomes integrated into your sense of who you are, which was your earlier point about how identity has become so bound up in this, that you are the sort of person who obviously doesn't cheat. This is a moral precept. Whereas if you're the kind of person who does cheat, you think, well, I'm the sort of person who generally I'm an easygoing kind of character. I can see what's important, what's not. Then you become that personality. And everybody cheats. I would be a fool and a chump not to cheat. That's, you know, so many Trump supporters, for example example, who don't seem upset at all that how many of his appointees have been uh, ethically challenged, shall we say. Uh, You know, a couple of months ago, we started seeing uh, videos of uh, people in markets not wearing masks and being enraged at somebody telling them to wear a mask and throwing their groceries on the ground and storming out of the store. I mean, what is the, who are these crazy people who won't wear masks? But they started at the top with a precedent from the president saying, you don't need no masks, don't wear masks. Loyalty to me is seen if you don't wear a mask. And so once you have made it a political choice rather than a medical choice, it becomes harder to change your mind. Now, what I find interesting about this is uh, intuitively, I think you're right that this has become much a bigger part of the way certainly political debate is conducted. But then that makes me wonder how we've shrunk the space in which people could keep different sort of contradictory ideas together and not suffer so much dissonance when it comes to a political choice. As you say, the neighbours who were Republican, Democrat could still have a chat over the back garden fence or uh, the equivalent in the UK, people who were Remainers and Leavers, or actually a more extreme example, I think, as you know, that does as about as extreme as it gets in British politics, who would have different views of the European Union in 2016, have now self-identified as, as irreconcilable tribes. Can you identify what the sort of cultural, social dynamics are that might have meant that that is different now to how it was maybe 10, 15 years ago? Do we even know? We do. We do know quite a bit about this, uh, partly because of the way in which as certain fundamental cultural identities that used to unite a culture have splintered into tribes 
then our identity, who we are as human beings, our values, our beliefs, become codified by our membership in the tribe. So if your identity is not as British or American or Canadian or Norwegian, but a sub-tribe within that community, then you will find a greater allegiance to that to that tribe. The fundamental notion, as Eliot discovered in his research, is that most people think of themselves as being smart and competent and informed. So if you now say to me, what were you thinking <laughs> favoring Brexit or not favoring Brexit? What were you thinking voting for Donald Trump? What you're saying is, what is the matter with you, you stupid twit? You know, how could you possibly hold such stupid ideas? Which will immediately make me confirm my belief that I was smart and competent and reasonable to hold the beliefs I do. And so this makes conversation about different points of view very difficult if it's done in a way to make one person feel challenged and stupid. That's not going to work. For views to change, it has to come from somebody like you within your tribe willing to stand up and say, can we talk about this? Because I think there's other ways to, to think about this. For example, here before our election, it was the Lincoln Project. It was the many Republicans standing up to Trump who were sending out brilliant ads opposing him, coming from Democrats who would have listened if you were a Republican. I would like to add one point about this business of being at the bottom of the pyramid. Mm, please. It's one of the great, fascinating revelations about understanding dissonance theory and this metaphor of the pyramid is that some people are willing to die rather than admit they're wrong. Here in the United States, in the Midwest, which was the heartland of, of opposition to masks and social distancing, People dying of COVID in the hospital are refusing to accept the evidence that COVID is, was not a hoax, willing to die. They're not unusual in that. The people who become committed to a belief that is so central and so important to them will die rather than say, I was wrong. This is always astonishing to observers, but it's a logical progression for those who find themselves at the bottom of the pyramid. I don't think I have many Trump supporters in the listenership and not even that many Brexit fans. I don't imagine people might sort of write in and, and say I'm wrong about that. But there is a tendency, I think, among a kind of a liberal worldview to think we are the terribly rational ones and we read books about cognitive biases and we know about all this stuff. And so behold, all these people down yeah, they, they don't see a pyramid. They see a right angled triangle, as it were. They say that you're all over there, especially if it's there's an evangelical religious element to it. They think, well, these people, they'll believe anything. It's all voodoo and mumbo jumbo. We, on the other hand, cleave to rational principles. Uh, and so I suppose it's presumably that in itself uh, it forms the component of a co potential cognitive dissonance you know, for us. For me, the liberal, I am I will have so many things baked into so many sort of cronyistic beliefs in my head. I, I can't possibly be as irrational as those people who won't wear masks in the supermarket or whatever it is. Thank you very much for raising this because that's a bias to think that we're unbiased. It's my favorite bias. <laughs> Social psychologist Lee Ross calls this naive realism. It's the bias that everyone else is biased except us. So therefore, if I can just get this person to sit down with me so I can explain why they are biased, you know, they'll change their minds. This is the hopelessly delusional liberal point of view, right? Um, everybody, everybody experiences cognitive dissonance when we are confronted with evidence that disagrees with something we believe. Well, we talk about this in the book, of course, because there are many beliefs that liberals hold, that leftists hold, that can be challenged. And it's really uncomfortable to um, acknowledge that. The notion that it's only the right wing here that opposes science and climate change and so forth, yes, that is an ideological pillar of right wing ideology, but there are many science deniers on the left too. You know, people shouting down research on transgender issues, people shouting down research on definitions of racism or on, you know, whatever it might be. The reason that science is so aggravating to so many people is that it forces us into dissonance. It forces us to put our beliefs to the test and see if they're supported or not supported. And the radical left in this country, you have a, a problem that I think is a very baked in issue of cognitive dissonance on the left, which is the fact that every time 
government or a state has actually tried to implement a really radical communistic or socialistic program it's ended in tyranny i mean this is that is an there is an evidence base for that and uh, there are all sorts of fabulous sort of arguments that are deployed against that's like well it would have worked if the cia hadn't undermined it or it would have worked if you know if it hadn't been for all the the, the sort of people in the party who didn't stick with it but as soon as you hear those arguments you think okay this this can happen on the as it were the the sort of self-certifying rationalistic left for sure well absolutely for one thing the social psychological phenomenon of witch hunts uh righteous posses going after anybody who says the wrong thing, silencing somebody that you disagree with. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles during the time of uh, McCarthy and the blacklist. That phenomenon turns up as often on the left as it does on the right. We just don't want to hear from people who disagree with us. And social media seems to have really accelerated this. I mean, I was thinking of something earlier when you were, you were saying that no one wants to hear, uh, you know, have their notion in quotes sort of stupidity uh, thrust in their face and that will give them a sort of a, a, a very strong incentive to to double down and dig in in their position i think that the sort of companion to that is the tendency particularly you see on social media which is to make an argument present someone with an argument that isn't actually directed at the person you're arguing with it's presenting their argument to this other audience to the side online you see it, twitter is very good on this because you can quote tweet someone so you can say i'm responding to this person but actually i'm holding them up as an example of everything that's stupid to and i don't like the word virtue signaling because it's become a very loaded term but it clearly describes something that happens which is saying i'm performing an argument that looks like a rational rebuttal of a position, but I don't actually realistically expect the person receiving this to, to, to change their mind. I'm just demonstrating how clever I am at rebutting their position. Absolutely. I was talking with a friend the other day about some of the similarities between the recovered memory hysteria of the uh, 1990s. That was a liberal uh, issue in the sense that it was the left that had raised the real issue of the sexual abuse of children and women. And so who wanted to b question women going into therapy and coming out thinking their fathers had raped them every day for 16 years, only they forgot? Who wanted to question that? And if you did, boy, as I did, as many other social scientists did, that was not welcome information. We were traitors to the cause and we were anti-feminist and we were betraying children and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I was sorry to interrupt because I was quite surprised when I read about this in your book. This didn't hasn't had as much purchase. There have been equivalent cases. There was a, there was similar issues with confected stories of satanic child abuse in this country, but nothing on the scale. I was so maybe it's worth unpacking quite the scale on which this happened in the U.S. It was uh, promulgated by many psychotherapists who saw memory as a recording device. Everything that happens to us is somehow recorded somewhere in the brain. And if you can't remember it, well, then we just have to dislodge it with hand grenades and truth serum and <laughs> I don't know, maybe whatever else. Hypnosis, that was- Hypnosis, yeah. Yeah, hypnosis. Um, all of which are now known to create confabulated memories, not actual ones, because memory doesn't work that way. It's not a perfect recording in the brain. And that, by the way, is hugely dissonant information to people who believe their memories are accurate. It's one of the great complaints of any couples, of any parents and children. My memory of what happened then is completely right. And if you don't agree, then your memory is full of holes. Because it's immensely personal. I mean, you tell the story of the, you know, the, the, the wonderful O, I think it's right. Is that right? Is that the name of the book? That's the name of the book. James Thurber wrote a gorgeous little book called The Wonderful O, Story of Pirates Who Take Over an Island and ban everything with an O in it. <laughs> so you can't speak with O's and you can't have a, you could have geese, but you can't have a goose and so forth. And I loved this story. I loved it. And my memory was very clear of my beloved father reading me this book. It's exactly the kind of book he would have read to me. Um, and uh, our reading aloud together, Ophelia Oliver without her O's, you know, <laughs> I did, it was just such a vivid memory to me. So vivid that when I took down the book to reread it, I saw that it had been published a year after my father died. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it was like, what? What? <laughs> I mean, that cannot be. Who, who read me the book? Who gave me the book? How, what? You know, I was. Uh, so I have to ask, did, and did you get to the bottom of the mystery of this? Are you able now to, as it were, deconstruct the memory? Or is it just you think this is a fiction I've told myself and I just have to keep it stored, just conscious that it is a fiction? It's a fiction. Well, it's clearly a fiction. I have no idea. You know, I thought maybe my older half brother got it for me, but I don't remember it. I don't remember it. Of course, that, you see, that's also how memory works. Once we have imported a mistaken um, memory, well, not a memory, a mistaken belief about a memory, it's very hard to dislodge it. It overwrites what happened originally and makes it very hard to access the original event. And going back to what we were saying earlier, forms part of your identity and a very clear sense of who you are. I mean, this is a very interesting polling evidence uh, in this country. and I'd be be surprised if it was different in the US, that, that far more people report now having opposed the Iraq war than opposed the Iraq war. I mean, actually, you know, if you, it, it was pretty 50-50 uh, and that is not the way it is now generally perceived. It's quite hard to find people who will say, oh yeah, no, I thought that was a great idea. We should definitely have done that. Um, <laughs> but they were literally, they're out there. Um, but because it, it you know, it, it made perfect sense to, to subsequently to not have been the person who endorsed it. We say memory is our self-justifying historian. And it was exactly the same thing in the United States. People at the time, about 75% of all Democrats and Republicans supported Bush going because of weapons of mass destruction being there, right? We all knew there were weapons of mass destruction. So what happened years later when there weren't any weapons of mass destruction? To this day, many Republicans believe they were found. George Bush himself has written, we never found them. It's one of the great miseries of my life that we never found them. We will still get letters from people saying, oh, no, 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 they were found. Democrats, however, forgot that they supported the war. I always knew right along it was just, you know, that was just a cover line to get us into that terrible war. So that's what we do. We revise our memories to allow us to keep seeing ourselves as having been right, smart, and informed. Now, this feeds into an interesting question, actually. It's almost a philosophical question about the way politics works, because that's going to form part of your sort of national self-concept. So I'm thinking now of a bit, you know, broader historical example. Up until the late 1930s, the Europe, the UK policy towards Nazi Germany was appeasement. That was the official line. It was only you know, with Churchill that it pivoted and it became clear you had to go to war. Uh, now, obviously, it's very, very important to UK national self-identification that we fought the war and we took on Hitler and we stood alone and we were heroic in that respect. Um, and appeasement is now used as a dirty word. It's the, those awful people who don't get it. They're everywhere and you have to watch out for them, but they're, they're wrong. So this perception that that was exactly what the mainstream establishment thought should be done. It's not very well recognized in this country. And I wonder, but for obvious reasons, but I wonder if it makes sense you know, to speak of mass dissonance. I mean, is it something that really you can only talk about at an individual level? Or is it is it stretching too far to say a whole country can e exhibit a, a dissonance effect in that way? That's a terrific question. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look what's happening in this country as people are being asked to examine the American myth that uh, there was this terrible civil war. Somehow we got beyond it. Then we had a few, a little more tinkering to do to get rid of some of the racist uh, elements. Oh, yes. And then there was a little problem with the civil rights movement. But see, since the civil rights movement, then that solved everything. And so with each revelation of an important figure in history who was 
particularly egregious racist or own slaves and so forth. It is a mass dissonance. It's the reason, of course, it feeds the political split between those on the right who want to believe in the beautiful America, you know, that has solved all of its problems with race and any problems in its history with Native Americans and so on, versus those who say, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. This is not an easy problem and it doesn't get solved overnight. So yes, there is certainly national dissonance. It's the reason so many countries are reluctant to go back into history and acknowledge the crimes they committed against other countries or people within their own country. Not an easy thing to do. Well, I suppose we all at some level grow up with the idea or that where you come from is, as it were, a normal baseline of what a place should be like. And you don't have to be a marching, tub-thumping patriot to think, well, the broad parameters of what I think is decent behaviour are the values that surrounded me. It's quite a challenging political ask to say the entire cultural apparatus of the country that you identify with has this this sort of original sin baked into it. Uh, but interestingly, I imagine people from a, who come at it from a liberal left perspective, because they're better rehearsed at those arguments and saying, oh, well, yeah, everything's bad and wrong and has to be fixed, which is a, not the conservative view, just they're on a smoother path to sort of slide down towards that and we'll find that easier. And they can then tell themselves that they're virtuous because of it. But actually, it's just less dissonant for them to get to that place. You have just identified the problem of complexity of thinking to, you know, I remember growing up with a love America, love it or leave it. No, <laughs> there's a third path, you know, called love it and improve it. Love it. Acknowledge the, this is true of anyone we love, you know, it's, there's no room for criticism, for improvement or for change, but you can see how that requires a certain degree of complexity. If I take every criticism that you make as too threatening to my belief, then we can never have a conversation about how we might make improvements. I mean, as soon as you were saying that, I was thinking of the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald quote where he says, um, the test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Well, clearly we are capable of it. Yeah, well, we are capable of it. You know, that's the my, one of my favorite stories in the book is what Shimon Peres said when Ronald Reagan went to Bitburg, you know, to lay a wreath there. The whole world is screaming at Reagan. What are you doing? The Nazi soldiers are buried there. You know how this is outrageous. And the reporter who asked Perez what he thought of his friend going to Bitburg, right? And what most people do with a friend who has done something horrible is minimize the horribleness or end the friendship. And Perez said, when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend and the mistake remains a mistake. When I, a good, kind, competent person, do something stupid, foolish, hurtful, and I remain a good person, but what I did remains the mistake that I made. It doesn't mean I'm stupid or incompetent. It means I screwed up or I did something wrong or I'm holding a belief that's past its shelf life and it's really time to give it up. And if we can get more people to think that way, then there's a possibility for change. That raises another, again, slightly philosophical challenge here, though, which is if we are all constantly managing our, our own sort of justifying ourselves to eliminate the dissonant effects in our own minds uh, and and the, we've got this corrupt archivist in our brain who's editing our memory and sort of scrunching up and throwing things away that don't really work well um with our the story we tell it suggests that people observing us from the outside have a clearer perception of who our autonomous authentic self is than we do which is quite an existentially problematic thing, at least for me. I like to think that I've, I've got pretty good ownership of who Raphael Baer is. But clearly, I do have to accept that I'm constantly negotiating that with people who've got a better idea of who I am than I do in some respects. Well, what a social psychologist would say is there's a different Raphael in different situations. The you that is you with your family and loved ones is not necessarily the you at work or the you on a street corner or... <laughs> traveling, um, we think of ourselves as consistent because we have our ego, which is the, the inner us that's perceiving the world and smoothing out edges and making it all feel consistent. But our behavior from situation to situation can be quite different. And how we are in one love affair may be very different from how we are in another love affair. Doesn't seem inconsistent to us. And the lovers will say we're not consistent, right? But 
we're very different. Yeah, presumably, again, actually, that must operate on a national level as well. I mean, I think about that. You see it very strongly in relation to the way American patriotism expresses itself internally and the way the U.S. can be viewed uh, outside. You used a great example of, of the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis, which to a lot of Americans, they didn't know anything about Iran. They didn't know about the Shah. They didn't know what a villain he was, how you know, how uh, what a horrible, aggressive regime that was, or the fact that there had been a, a, an attempted sort of US-backed coup in the 1950s. And all the history, that meant that to a lot of Iranians, it, it made perfect sense to describe the US as the great Satan, which was not the idea that the US had of itself. And, uh, and Britain, very much so in terms of, you know, the, as you say, the history of empire, it's very difficult for people who who have a, a sense of a continuous Britain evolving towards progress and then having all these pesky people turn up and say, no, you have to re-examine all these things that you've done. And that is part of who you are. It's baked exactly. into your Every ideas. culture, every culture, small and large, has a creation myth. We struggled, we fought, they hated us, you know, but we prevailed, we survived, and look how great we are now. And besides, we're really cute. And once you have a creation myth that is the story of how we came to be a people that has a power that is greater than its content. You know, I'm always interested. I have a friend who leads the Passover Seder uh, at her Unitarian church. And she says, you know, we can see a Seder in one of three ways. We can see it as a religious ceremony that for Jews, this was the formation of the Jewish identity. We can see it as an anthropological tribal ritual, which Every country has in the spring something that welcomes spring, and we can see it as a creation myth, that the story itself is what explains how we came to be Jews. And I think that's true for us in so many, all of us in, in our countries or our particular tribal identities, if you will, to the extent that we share the mythic version, we do not want to hear any quibbles wait a minute, it couldn't have actually happened that way. Or wait a minute, you were pretty brutal to those people that you squashed in order to become yourselves, you know? I came across this idea of, of particularly national myths a long time ago, and I studied national identity and the theories of nationalism. Uh, and there's a, it was quite interesting because people, when they hear the word myth, they bridle a lot. They think, oh, what you mean? Like it's a fairy tale. It's completely made up. There's no truth to it. And it's very important, I think, that you know, people don't really understand that it's not... Okay, it's not necessarily a compliment to say this idea you have of where your country came from is a myth, but you're not saying it's total fiction. What you're saying is, as I understand it, the construction that resonates, and it only resonates if there is some kernel of believable truth, if it, if it seems to connect to something that you can identify. So, you know, the US foundation myth, modern US foundation myth is, is problematic because there were people living on that continent before the white settlers got there and there was a genocide perpetrated against them, still had slavery, even though the first American Republic based on enlightenment values. So it's, there are all these dissonances there. But it is still true that this was a phenomenal, amazing experiment in democracy that really did express enlightenment values. Those two things can be true at the same time. But you can see how there's a lot of dissonance. That, that goes back to our point that really, the goal here for us all has to be to live with dissonance rather than jump to the quick impulse to dismiss any dissonance, dismiss the criticism or dismiss the, the praise, dismiss the praise. It's important, of course, for a country to have a feeling somehow of shared values. I, I really like your idea about mass cognitive dissonance because I think that's, that's very true and it's a source of much conflict because any nation is going to need some cohesive values or goals or you'll end up the way the United States is right now, completely polarized 50-50 with two different sets of views about what to do going forward. And by the way, I mean, the disaster of the last few years of alternative facts, uh, propaganda machines such as Fox News in the United States, I mean, these are echo chambers when you're enmeshed in a wrong belief and have no way of opening your mind to disconfirming ideas, then you just fall down the pit into deeper and deeper commitment to that belief. That's the danger of the way our media operate today. I mean, raises what I think is becomes actually a really profound ethical challenge because uh, you have to talk about, you, I agree entirely about the need for shared values and, and nations can only really be held together if there's some common body of facts and understanding of what reality is. But if you need to build the bridges between these polarized groups of people, 
that you, there's also has to be some element of sort of setting aside the grievance. And then, you know, you talk about the difference between, you know, a, a, a wrong and a right where someone's done something terrible to you. And it's obvious they've done it. Someone, a stranger punches me in the head and I go, well, <laughs> that, that was very nice. And that was clearly wrong. I could stop and think maybe he just had a bad day and, or maybe he's got some illness that makes his, fists fly out from his arm i don't know whatever it is i could be very generous and forgive him on that basis but i'm gonna be angry but actually then there are all these other things where there is no blame or it's really hard you know marital arguments or or arguments between neighbors over politics where if you want to try and build bridges between them someone's going to have to say i although deep down i think i'm right i'm just going to let it go and that's an ethical problem if you think it's a moral point at heart. You know, it's quite difficult for liberal Americans to say, you know, and particularly liberal Americans of colour to say, I know there's a lot of racism out there and a lot of racists voted for Donald Trump, but I'm OK with that if we can have a nice, everyone-friendly Biden presidency. That's a big ask, isn't it? Well, the first book I wrote back in the 17th century was on <laughs> anger. And uh, it feels that long ago now, but Researchers were drawing a very important distinction ethically as well as psychologically, which is what do you want to be angry for? What do you want to accomplish when you're angry? If you just want to feel, make the other person feel as bad as you do, if you just want to ventilate at them and let them know that you are angry, that's one motive. If your goal is to change the other person's mind, if your goal is to work with the other person towards some shared goal, then perhaps different ways of expressing anger might be called for. Malcolm X, many years ago in the civil rights days, said, I believe in anger. There is a time for anger. Black Lives Matter was that time for anger. Suddenly, enough of these police killings for crying out loud, a time for anger. Then comes the hard part, which is how do we work? to change the culture of policing in this country? How do we work with those who support the police, who don't understand that there might be racist problems with the police? How do we change that system? That can't come from yelling in the street. That's hard work. That's politics. And that needs bridges. There's a great quote from Philip Roth in one of his novels uh, where he says, he puts it in the mouth of a character in Venice and he says, anger is to make you effective. That's why it's given to you. If it doesn't make you effective, drop it like a hot potato. And I think that that, that I think is quite a useful distinction because clearly it, it's there's an evolutionary mode. But as you say, it, its energy has to be channeled in a certain way. And it was very interesting in your book physiologically, you don't feel better after you've vented. You feel worse. It heightens. Is that right? It heightens all the, yeah, the blood pressure goes up. You just make yourself feel worse. Yeah, yeah. And for humans, it rehearses the story. The more you yell at the other person about what a jerk you are and how could you be so stupid, the more you are reinforcing your belief that that person is that way and is that bad. And the less likely you are to hear any, dare I say, disconfirming or questioning of your belief in that person's vileness. But yes, anger, <laughs> anger is a way to draw attention to a problem. No question. One of the things that really strikes me is the effort that you put into finding the positive examples of people who have resisted, have successfully either, you know, you gave the example of Shimon Perez, but people who have had the courage to be whistleblowers in regimes where that, that hasn't been easy. Uh, and I wonder what the either cultural and or psychological conditions are, if any, that seem to lead to that behavior as opposed to the rest of us who just languish at the bottom of the pyramid being angry about stuff. You're asking, what does it take for a person to be courageous? If we knew, if I could say, <laughs> I would have the Nobel Peace Prize immediately. Very often, we, are, we can make ourselves aware of dissonance, that uncomfortable feeling that I thought I was right about this, and here's a study showing I'm wrong. Now we can take 10 seconds and say, maybe I shouldn't just throw this study out of hand. Maybe it's got something important to tell me. Maybe I do need to change my mind. We can give ourselves that breathing room. Now, with friends and neighbors, the most heartbreaking question Elliot and I got all last year and this year was how do I deal with my relative who's a Trump supporter? Because to me, that's not a political decision only. That is a moral one. That person is telling me what their values are, what their bigotries are, 
what their what their failure to think critically or to care about other people is for them. It's more than just a political vote. Uh, how do I live with that? What should I do at an individual level? It's not that there's a right or wrong answer. Some people say, you know, I'm going to just pay attention to what I love about this person, to our long history, to our long friendship, and hope they will forget that they supported Trump in two years. <laughs> you know, But of course, then they won't learn from the mistake that we have been living with for four years. It sounds like there's a lot of things in common between the US and the UK in this respect, that it feels to me that you know everyone's waiting for the political projects that's really good at giving people ladders for them to climb down with their pride intact. You know, So we're gonna have this moment in January where the UK, the transition period out of the EU is finally over and we, we'll get a pretty hard Brexit. It'll either be extremely hard, a crash landing or a bumpy landing, but there's no, nice soft version anymore and a lot of people who didn't support brexit i think are, are wrongly anticipating a great moment where the scales fall from the eyes of the levers and they all turn around and say oh you're right you're so right this was such a stupid idea how did we go along with this and everything that you and i have discussed would suggest that that's not you're shaking Carol's shaking her head i can just confirm people listening to this <laughs> no we leave we were writer than ever is that a word writer we, <laughs> we, we were even more right you know that no because Here's, here's the exquisite prediction of dissonance theory. The greater the evidence that we have done something stupid, foolish, or wrong, the more likely we are to justify our belief or our action or our decision. That's the power of it to keep us from, in fact, saying, whoa, was I stupid to vote, vote to leave? Uh-uh, uh-uh. They're going to find all of the benefits for leaving and now we have pride in our country and going forward we're going to be the strongest country in the world and you know so this is a really elemental challenge essentially for the whole of our politics because there, there are always going to be contradictory opinions in society there will always be uh, individuals who have a fanatical attachment to those opinions and we're going to need some kind of institutional, personal mechanisms for effecting reconciliation. In order to really move forward as individuals and as a nation, we really have to face the mistakes that we made individually or culturally, tribally, or as a country, face them, understand as best we can where they came from, and then make an effort to do something about them rather than to just smother them with silence. In the very first edition of our book, Eliot did not want to talk about the people who can't reduce dissonance, the people who suffer sleepless nights uh, and the torments of regret of roads not taken that they should have or decisions they made that were so miserable and painful and wrong and so forth. And they torment themselves sometimes for years with the burden of self-blame. That is not the alternative to living with dissonance. You know, it's not like you deny any disconfirming evidence or you accept it and beat yourself with it. The middle path is not an immediate, okay, I did this bad thing and now it's over and done with and I can move forward and on we go. Yes, the United States did torture people, but that was then and this is now and we won't do it again. And Or oh, that was last government and we're a different government. So you can't possibly hold us responsible for that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And on we go. But in between, it, and I, I like this notion of self-compassion, but it, as he puts it, it has to be earned. You don't just wake up and say, okay, I'm done here. In our latest edition of our book, we talk about uh, some of the soldiers suffering from PTSD, you know, in the military and in wartime, and they cannot forgive themselves for the killings that they committed. And then how do you live with that? What do you do to atone for that, to educate others about that? Because there are behavioral things that people can do, but you have to face what it was. And it's not comfortable. That's what dissonance is. It's painful. At every turn, what you encounter is this tension between finding what you have in common with other people, uh, forgiveness, essentially, or, or, or letting things go, and also retaining some notion of responsibility and accountability so that you're not just saying, well, we, it's easy enough to say let bygones be bygones if you're mediating, but you can't realistically expect people emotionally and psychologically to do that. And, and as you say, I mean, I'm fascinated by this middle way, I think you're absolutely right, that earned self-compassion seems to me, I hadn't really thought about that before, as compromise between letting it go and retaining a sense of moral responsibility. The difficulty of saying I was wrong 
is very important for people to understand. For many people, the whole study of science, of history, of government, and learning where we've been wrong, that's exhilarating. That's the point. <laughs> if you do research to find out that your belief of something or other is wrong, as well as what might be effective. And it's that process of discovery that is exciting and promising and leads to change. It would be a nice attitude to cultivate in ourselves in general, in our relationships. Ah, I was really wrong about that. Was I, honey? Gee whiz. Well, um, let me think. You know what? I think you're right. Nobody ever gets into trouble saying to another person, honey, I think you're right. You know, if more people realize this, the world would be a happier place. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, and the, the science thing is so important in that respect. You know, the idea that, you know, it, it, politics is so far removed. There's no, no one, go, no one implements a policy in government going, well, let's just do a little pilot. And, you know, with any luck, we'll find out what that this doesn't work, and then we'll know for sure what we can do instead. You know that, but but once you've invested, saying we're doing this policy, we're spending money on it, it has to work, and then you've built in all the incentives to sort of to basically ignore all the evidence when it starts to not work. You know, doing the experiments to be proved wrong is so central to the scientific method and so far from the political method. Exactly right. I remember a great uh, social scientist many years ago, Campbell, who said, to be effective, government must measure its failures. You put in a, a method of determining that your policy is correct and you encourage everybody assessing your policy to give you all the confirming cases of how it's working and none of the disconfirming cases of where it isn't, you're not going to progress. The program will eventually fade. I did want to ask about whether there's a gender element to this, whether there is a kind of a macho culture that makes it harder for people to, or that the, 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 the presentation of I was wrong as a sign of weakness that just doesn't fit with the, frankly, patriarchal model of leadership that we've developed for such a long time. And therefore, you know, presumably cognitive dissonance exists across the population. But is there a, is there a gender dimension to this? Asking the gender question is fabulous because many people think, ah, women being a far better species <laughs> are far more willing to admit they're wrong than men are because of the macho thing, exactly as you say, uh, wrong. <laughs> okay. Which is to say, yes, you know, you're right in the sense that, yeah, we all know the macho thing. I can't admit that I was wrong, blah, blah. But remember that the central phenomenon is how you see yourself. So if uh, a man feels uh, uh, challenged by his ability to, I don't know what, fix his car or something, he'll say, no, 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 I, uh, I never make a mistake and I know what I'm thinking and I'm smarter than, than most people about politics and so my views are right, blah, blah, blah. But women, likewise, if you hit them, if you challenge them on a belief that is central to their identity as women, I'm a terrific mother and I want to protect my children. And therefore, I am not going to vaccinate my children because I'm really worried that vaccinations might harm them. And now you say, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong. Vaccines have saved millions and millions of lives from measles, mumps, and rubella. And you're wrong to be opposed to vaccinations. And we understand why at first, as a good mother, you would be concerned about your children's health. And do they say, why, thank you so much for this very important information. They do not. They tell you where you can go with your damn shot. So it's not a gender difference. It's at what the core belief or identity is for a particular man or woman, whether they will feel dissonance if you challenge their beliefs. The context in which people are imagining what will make them look stupid. So there is a fear of looking stupid and men will, for cultural reasons, have probably configured that differently. I mean, I'm just, I'm very aware of this because when I do this podcast, I, I'm always thinking, in, I have this own anxiety, like, was that a stupid question? Am I, did that make any sense? Mm -hmm. um, because I have a self-image of myself as someone who ought to ask clever questions. And the danger then is I asked the wrong question because I'm not just asking the honest question. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I don't dispute that there might be some, uh, you know, uh, macho involvement, but you've gone right to the heart of this. Nobody wants to feel stupid, whatever the context may be. And that business about questions, no question is a stupid question, is what children have to learn in school right from the get-go. Because certainly in the US and maybe to an extent in the UK, the idea that I don't know an answer doesn't mean I don't know an answer. It means I'm stupid. And I think men and women can be equally likely to say that if they do something clumsy or 
decide they've asked a foolish question. The action makes them think they're stupid. And that's what we have to fight against fiercely. And fight against the tendency to try and and assert what is right by making other people feel stupid. There's a great cognitive dissonance article called When in Doubt, Shout. which I think summarizes it too. I'm, you really have the argument here, buddy. But if I just yell louder, you'll believe me. <laughs> I think we've used up an awful lot of your time. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fascinating, enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's been a lively and most enjoyable conversation for me too. Thank you. That's it for Politics on the Couch, at least before Christmas. So please have a happy, restful and cognitively harmonious holiday season. We might try to sneak a bonus episode in before the New Year deadline. Otherwise, we'll be back in 2021. Thank you, everyone, for sustaining this podcast for its first year, just by listening, by sharing and saying nice things in the reviews. Mostly nice things. Most common complaint seems to be that... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The podcast doesn't appear frequently enough which is the kind of criticism I can really get behind. I'm prepared to take that quite comfortably. So we'll try to fix that in the next year. Um, In the meantime, have a good one, everyone.